you want to turn with me to the book of Revelation, please? What I'd like to do this morning is basically to share out of our elders, our leadership meeting that we have every Thursday. Uh, some of the things that we've done already this morning were a result of that meeting. Some of the, the song that we sang, uh, Lichia brought that. Helen's going to bring a prophetic word just now as we were praying together. We felt God speak to us clearly on Thursday. It was a very exciting time. And the title of my message this morning is simply this, Coming Back to Love. And we're going to look at some portions out of Revelation uh, to kind of along that theme of coming back to love. Last week, I, I kind of tried to communicate with one of the key themes that I felt God has been speaking to us as a church this year, and I kind of want to carry on with that out of our time that we had on Thursday. Uh, what I spoke about last week was the centrality of the gospel. It's one of the things that God has been restoring to us. Is this absolute, at the absolute center of everything is Jesus Christ crucified. And I know that sounds obvious, but uh, there's so many things that can uh, force their, their way into your thinking and to your theology and usurp the place of Jesus at the center. And so we feel like that's a, 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 a real theme that God has been restoring, that ultimately at the end of the day, everything that we do, everything that we live in, is Christ is at the center of everything. And so that is a simple truth, but it's a profound truth. So I looked at Philippians 1 last week. And the theme of the message that I, I preached was simply this, Paul saying, all that has happened to me is for the serve to advance the gospel. Uh, a profound thing to say. Everything that has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And I, I asked last week whether you could say that of your life, that all that's happened this last year has served to more fully form the gospel in you. And for me, I, I, I had to come to a place of saying, well, there have been some difficult things, Lord, but yes, you've more and more fully formed the gospel in me through this year because of what I've lived through. And we looked at that whole thing of partnership in the gospel, what that means, what the, word, what gospel, the gospel actually means, and try to understand the full, fullness of that. That not, we not only have partnership in terms of uh, koinonia, fellowship with each other, but we have partnership also as we speak the truth of the gospel into our families and our community. That, that's part of partnership. So there's this communion with each other, but there's also a declaration of the goodness of God to people that don't know Him. And that's part of this partnership that we have. And out of that, we looked at the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and the wisdom of God. Do you remember? Okay? And we said those three things are pillars in our lives. If we want to overcome, if we want to persevere, surely we have to be convinced of the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and the wisdom of God in our lives. If we are not convinced of those things, whenever any pressure comes, we are going to wobble. And we're going to say, Lord, you're not really good. Why is this happening to me? Is your hand of blessing off my life? Someone once said that to me, that the hand of God is lifted off your life. I thought, what, what a... Uh, a lack of understanding of the grace of God. God never lifts his hand off his sons. Never. He might discipline us. He might say, well, my, my boy, I want you to get something right. But he never takes his hand off us, ever. He's smiling on us. And I want you to leave this morning knowing that God is smiling on you. And so, to continue out of what I shared last week, there has been another central thing that I feel God has been just reinforcing week after week after week in our times of prayer, in our times of fellowship together. And it's simply this, that God desires a divine romance with you and I. He wants your heart completely and fully. He wants a passionate love relationship with you. That's what he wants. And many of the guys that have preached, Trevor, Mike, Petrie, Nick, myself, that is the theme that has come through much of the preaching of this year is this divine romance that God desires with his people and that everything else that gets in the way of that romance that he, that he has for us needs to be dealt with and done away with so that we can enjoy this intimacy like we've not experienced yet. That's what he, he has for us. He's calling, he's wooing, he's saying, come back, I love you, I want that intimacy with you. And so out of that, I've asked Helen just to share this um, word that she had on Thursday in our time of prayer together. And I just think it really profoundly summarizes some of, the, some, some of these things. Well, um, actually, it was a dream I had on Monday night. Um, uh, I had this dream, and sometimes I don't know if you, it's like this for you, you wake up and you think that was a strange dream. But as you think about it, I really felt God saying, no, this was a dream from me. And um, I had 
this picture of um, this most beautiful, exquisite woman. She was almost like a Hollywood star, so glamorous, so beautiful, so well-dressed and, and just very, very beautiful. And she was sitting in the back seat of a car on the one side. And on the other side of the seat of the car was a man who was dressed in the slickest, suavest suit, very very elegant, very sophisticated, and very in control. And he was sitting on the other side. And in my dream, I became aware that the husband of this woman was driving the car and with this man in the back and his wife in the other side of the seat. And as the dream went on, I realized that this man in the suit was trying to very subtly seduce this beautiful woman with the husband in the front, in the driver's seat. And he used, he wasn't overt, he was very subtle in the sense that he suggested to her the many things that he could give her that her husband couldn't give her. And because he had so much at his disposal, because he was so... um, worldly wise and, and sufficient and, and he could open doors and opportunities to her. And I remember just in this dream, which is what struck me, was this beautiful woman. She just looked at this man and she said to him, that is my husband and I love my children. And that was all she said to him. And she didn't give in to this seduction that was happening and then in the next scene as dreams do suddenly change scene like a movie I just saw her in the arms of her husband and this incredible intimacy and feeling safe and secure and uh, as I began to meditate on this dream I, I felt the Lord say to me that that beautiful woman is his bride is his church and that when he looks at us his people he sees us as this most exquisite beautiful bride, just absolutely delightful to him. But that as I felt this man on the side was a picture of the world and that the world would want to entice this beautiful bride because it also sees too that she's beautiful and would like to lure her away and say that in the world, her needs will be fulfilled in, in the worldly ways, in, in, in sophistication and in organizational things that she could f- find fulfillment. And uh, I, I just felt that God was calling us to, first of all, know how beautiful we are to him, how cherished we are to him, but also that her security was found in saying, that is my husband and these are my children. And that sometimes the world would say, come and be sophisticated. Come and just find your significance in other things. And uh, I just, yeah, I just wanted, I felt God wanted to say to us as a church, will you come and just find your security in the intimacy with me? That is where you will be safe. Not in the sophistication of what the world would want to give you. Um, and then as we were praying on Thursday, one um, Nick had a, an amazing prophetic picture of when Jesus called the disciples into the boat and said, we're going to the other side. And it's the story of when the storm came. And, you know, it took a, it always takes a step of faith to get into a boat. And uh, he just felt this amazing thing. He said, you know, God is taking us to the other side. We've been speaking about an unknown path of going on a new journey in the spirit of being open to God in a whole new level of intimacy but it takes a step of faith to get into the boat. And uh, I think he said two things. He said, it's two things are guaranteed. We're going to face storms, but we're going to get to the other side. And, uh, you know, sometimes it involves taking that step of faith, trusting that he's in control of the boat, like, like um, Andre said, he's in control. And then Petri just brought this amazing thing, like that Nora Jones song, where she sings, come away with me, those words, and just that wonderful sense that that's what Jesus is saying, come away with me, I'm drawing you into that intimate place, away from the sophistication and enticement of the world that would try to seduce us into a place of safety and security in him. Amen. So Father, we thank you for your written word, but we thank you too for your prophetic word. We thank you all prophetic word always comes to encourage us, refresh us, strengthen us, 
point us to Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for the clarity of those words that you brought to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are our lover. You are our husband. We thank you, Lord, that you desire a pure bride. We thank you that you're doing amazing things in your people and that you desire the full intimacy of our hearts. You long for that more than anything else. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that you'd continue to move us deeper and deeper into a relationship with you that is passionate, intimate, full of, of joy, full of faith because of what you're doing on the inside of us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, as I preach now, I pray that every word that is from you would stick in our hearts. I wanna pray that everything that is not from you would drop to the floor and die. And Lord, I, I give you what I've prepared, but I ask Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would bring life and that you would encourage and you would refresh because that ultimately is what you wanna do. You wanna build us and encourage us and make us more and more like Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's wonderful to preach the goodness of God to you this morning. So if you are, in, open your Bibles, <coughs> go to Revelation chapter 2. I'd just like to make some comments. I, I felt this was a portion that God gave me at that same meeting as we were praying. I felt God stir me with some thoughts out of these chapters. And um, I'd like to pick as we go through just some, um, just some comments about the book of Revelation. This is obviously a prophetic book. It's an epic. Ap- uh, apocalyptic, yes, book, concerning the end times, and it's been a fascination for many, many centuries with many, many people, and often people try and apply stuff to Revelation, uh, revelations that is not there, and get into all sorts of trouble, all right? So I'm not going to preach this morning from the point of view that the end of the world is coming, and God has revealed to me the time and date of that, because that is absolutely ridiculous. The Father alone knows when the end will come, all right? This is a prophetic book. And it is concerning the end, but at the very, chapter 1, verse 1, there's this amazing statement where it just talks about Jesus as the author of the book. Through this revelation that he gives to John, Jesus is the author, and it is a revelation. It's a prophetic unveiling, if you like, of the spiritual forces that are operating behind the scenes in history and controlling the destiny of the plan of God. It's a This revelation is communicated in a series of visions, and they're a bit like the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, that kind of prophetic language is absolutely part and parcel of revelation. Someone of the commentators said this, it said, prophecy, here we see prophecy not only as divine prediction of future events, but also of divine diagnosis of the present state of affairs of the church. And so it has this twofold thing that we can apply. Yes, it concerns the future and the end, but it also concerns what God is saying to his churches now. And in that sense, it's profoundly prophetic to us. And so the author is John, and he doesn't deny that he's the author, but when you, when you uh, see how he speaks about himself, he says that he's the recipient of these visions, but Jesus is the author of the book, all right? And uh, if you go to chapter 22, verse 9, he, in fact, John doesn't call himself an apostle there. He says he's amongst the prophets. So for him, this is a prophetic revelation, and he's in the, on the, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and what Jesus brings to him, he writes down. And he's been consistently identified as the, one of the disciples that, uh, who wrote the book of, of, of the, the Gospel of John, and um, the one that Jesus loved. So one of the church fathers, Arrhenius, he said this, that John received the revelation almost in our own time towards the end of the reign of Domitian, which means that we can, we can uh, place this book in history uh, towards the end of the first century of, Christ, of the Christian faith, about AD 1996, somewhere around there. And for me, that is profound, because already if you look at what the, the portions we're going to look at this morning, the church was already struggling with some things that are issues right now for us, only not even 100 years later from the birth of the church. And I think God wants to speak to us through these things this morning. So like I said, these general themes in Revelation are this cosmic battle between the Lamb and all that love Him on the one hand and the devil and all His forces on the other. But the good news is this, is that Jesus has won the decisive victory. Okay, thank you, Kath. So you agree. Let's go. Jesus has won the decisive victory. And the picture, there's this picture in Revelation of the dragon. 
that fights at war with the church, but the dragon is defeated. It's in its death throes, and basically the church is experiencing something of those death throes as the dragon now tries to do as much damage as he can. But those things, it's through things like persecution, false teaching, seduction, manipulation. We're going to have a look at those things. And desiring to be approved culturally. We're going to have a look at those, those things this morning. So if you want to read with me, we're going to go to chapter 2. We're going to look at the, the, um, the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches. Now the reason that these, these, um, these seven letters are written to the churches are, would, would now be Western Turkey. And it's interesting because that was the old Roman pro- province of Asia. But in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 23, and also in verse 7, it's, it shows us that these, chur- these, these uh, letters are written not only to those churches, but to all. They are representation of the churches because it uses phrases like all the churches and to the churches multiple. So it's a picture for us, not only for those seven, but representing something of what Jesus is saying to those churches for all of us. Am I making myself clear? So it's a, it's a prophetic declaration. And so those, those, those seven churches were threatened by false teaching. We're going to look at that. It's, it talks about the Nicolaitans in, in chapter 2. They were threatened by persecution. Also read that in chapter 2. By compromise with the surrounding uh, pagan culture. That was also in uh, chapter 2. And that happened through idolatry and through sexual immorality. And the culture was trying to entice them away from the truth. And then also by spiritual complacency. Chapter 3. And those for me are absolutely profound because those are the challenges that you and I face right now. Living in the 21st century as Christians in a pagan culture, a secular humanist culture, those are the same things that the devil would attack the church with and the same things that I believe God is encouraging us to stand against, to stand strong. And so there are these three pictures. There's this picture of Violence, which is personified in the beast, the beast that comes and fights. It's a, it's a picture of violence. There's a, a picture of heresy, and that's the false prophet. It speaks often about this, the false prophet that would come. And there's this thing of the seduction of the culture and the seduction of wealth and the seduction of affluence and influence, and that is through this picture of the prostitute that would seduce God's people into a destiny that God does not have for them. So having said all that, as an introduction, our... You, there's no ways in one thing we can ever preach through the whole of Revelation. I'm going to pick out a couple of things that I feel like God is saying to us as a church and what He has been saying to us this year. Can I just say this? If, God was, if Jesus were to come to Forest Town Church and He were to write us a letter, what do you think He would say? Just a question. What would he say? Just as he says to these seven churches, in each of these little letters, you'll see he commends them, and he says, well done on those things, and on the, uh, on the other side, for some of them, there's a warning, but there's always a con- com- commendation saying, well done. What do you think Jesus would say if he came to us? What would he say, well done? Well done. You've done well. What things do you think he would say, well, I want to warn you about that, or perhaps you need to Give some attention there. What do you think? It's just a thought. I'm not asking for any answers. I'm just saying, let's think about it. What would Jesus say if he wrote a letter to us, just as he wrote a letter to these churches? And for me, when you look at this process of these seven little letters, it describes the slow slide from an absolute passionate love affair with Jesus to when we read about the Laodicean church and they are absolutely lukewarm. It describes this kind of low, the slide from one degree, not of glory to another, but downward. And I want to encourage you this morning, I want to say to you that God wants that passionate love affair with us. He doesn't want that lukewarm kind of safe, uh, we'll just see what happens kind of Christianity. He wants a passionate affair with His church. He wants all of our hearts. He wants us lock, stock, and two smoking barrels as the movie goes. He wants every single part of your and our affection. He is jealous for it. I don't think that's what he's been saying over and over again this year. The full passion of our heart. So let's read about the church in Ephesus, which is the first portion of chapter 2. He says here, Jesus speaking. Remember, these are the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus comes to the Ephesian church and he says, well done on getting your doctrine right. Well done. You've persevered. You've not endured unsound doctrine. Well done on these things. But at the end of the day, what the heart of this letter is saying, come back to the love that you had. It's good that you've got good doctrine. It's good that you've put it in place. It's good that you've persevered through it. But the thing that I desire more than anything else is the love of your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. And the commentators say one of two things, that this thing of first love. They say perhaps the Ephesian church had lost its love for Christ. Or some others say because of that phrase where it says, uh, revive the compassionate works that you did at first. Perhaps they'd lost love for each other. And I want to say I think both are true. Both are true. Why? Because when we are passionately in love with Christ, our relationships with each other will be loving as well. The two are connected. There is this vertical thing of how we love Jesus, and there's another uh, horizontal thing of how we love each other. I think both of those are true. Those things are related. And when God is calling for the, the full passion of our hearts, we can love others with the same love that we receive from Him. And that's the beautiful thing that God is calling. Uh, I remember Becky's word from this year where she said she believes God would say of this church that we will be famous for loving Him and for loving each other. Amen. That's what it's about. And I believe that's the heart of God towards us. I want to say this. I don't feel like it's just that He wants us, you know, when you first save, you have those amazing feelings of thankfulness. Those are wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And I think God does want to restore something of that. But you know, I've been married now for 17 years. I think I loved Helen. It is amazing, isn't it? She's a good woman. When you get married, you love the other person with absolute passion, with as much of your understanding and your heart that is possible in that moment. You love them. You think, I can never love this person anymore. But when you've been walking together for 17 years, you love them at a completely different level in a completely different way, and something of that first love pales into significance. It's true. Of course you love them passionately, and I believe God would say the same. He doesn't want us to just go back to that, we do want that fire, that love that we had for him, but he's also calling to us to a love and an intimacy that we have not yet experienced with him, because it is so deep, and it is so profound, and it's so full of deep, deep cornonia with him. It's both and. I beg your pardon? It's love that's walked a road. I absolutely believe that. So I want to just say some things that I feel like God would say to us. As he desired for the Ephesian church to repent, as he desired to give them the ability to come back to him, I want to say, God, is, that's on his heart for us. What kind of things does he want us to come back to? Well, I want to say he wants to, us to repent of safeness. He wants us to repent of mediocrity. He wants us to repent of passionless worship. I love you, Lord. You're so good. I can hardly lift my hands. I'm so bored. I'd rather be reading children's stories right now. Passionless worship. He wants us to repent of that. He wants the full, full, full measure of your heart. Not the leftovers. Not dragging yourself in on Sunday. Oh, God, these people are going to worship again. And you're so worthy. Come on, guys, you hear what I'm saying? Passionless, he wants to repent. Faithless prayer. Not really believing that he's good and sovereign and has the best for our lives. Faithless. The words are there, but there's no faith. I'm not angry. I'm trying to encourage you. All right? Lack of generosity. Love without sacrifice. So easy to say you love someone without any sacrifice. Not really putting yourself out. Of worship without wonder. Isn't that beautiful when there's a sense of wonder in your heart that just overflows and you cannot help yourself? It's like a pure well that's going straight from your heart. 
because there's just one dad who God is. I mean, when you have a, how many of you had babies born this, this year? A number. And when you see that first child, man, if you, if you don't cry, there's something, you're heartless. There's that sense of absolute wonder at this little being that's just one sperm and one egg and and they got together and fought through the millions of other sperm and you see that's an old joke. You are a winner if you're born because you fought yourself through all those other millions of sperm. Have you heard that joke? It's two. Well, only one wins the race and it goes and impregnates the egg and then this baby is born and it's the most beautiful. It's just you, you just struck with a sense of wonder. How much more that we worship the God of the universe and that sense of wonder stirring in our hearts. I think God wants us to repent of riskless repetition. Riskless. No faith. No sense of this could actually go wrong. (laughs) It's just safe. We've done it like this for years. Let's just carry on. Just on this little, okay, so we'll just get on and we'll just walk on this path and we know what's going to happen from one meeting to the next and from how boring that's not what God has for us he's calling us onto an unknown path walking by the spirit it's exciting and it's dangerous thank you talks and that's the kind of church we want to be part of I'm sure you do as well and I think if we allow God to change our hearts about those things that is learning to walk by the spirit What did Eaton say at the beginning of the year? We've said it many times. Those who walk by the Spirit deliberately fulfill the law accidentally. You don't have to worry about a whole lot of stuff. When God is leading you, you're going to do it automatically. Oh, yes. So I want to just say, put up my hand. God's been challenging me about these things this year. And I I I want to not point a finger at anybody else except myself. I'm at the head of the line. I'm learning to change as God changes me. And that's the call of His heart towards all of us. He desires the full passion of our hearts. That's what he wants for you and I. And so he's calling us away from that, the smooth seduction of the businessman in the suit who's got everything down. He's got the bucks, he's got the money, he's got the system, he's got everything, and the world will just say, come alongside me, and if you just do things like that, the church will grow and prosper. That's the call of the world. You want to know how the church is going to prosper is when people get excited about the fact that Jesus has saved them and they share that with other people. That's how the church is going to grow. When we get excited about God's work in our hearts and our lives and we cannot help ourselves, but we communicate that to other people. Yes, amen. We're married to Jesus. We're married to him. He's our bridegroom. He's our first love. Not this smooth-talking Slick business type. And for those of you who are in business, I'm not pointing, I'm, it's a picture, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying you like that. Of course, we need good businessmen. I also believe he wants us to have a passionate love for each other. Deep, deep friendships that will last forever. Dom and Ali, we say farewell to today. I want to say I trust in, 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 in heaven and on earth that our relationship will continue. Absolutely. If it doesn't, well, what has the last 10 years been about? We want deep relationship with each other. Intimacy with him and intimacy with each other. And it is true that when we stray from good, do- good doctrine, then other things can invade our hearts. And we looked in the last couple of weeks at idols, those things that are in our hearts that take the place of Jesus. So we do need good doctrine. But even at the end of the letter, the Ephesians had taken a stand against the Lycalations. And we're going to look at it, what that means just now. But basically they were a Christian sect. They had um, infiltrated the church. And that what they brought into the church was idolatry and a, a kind of sexual immorality. Perhaps confusing Christian freedom by grace with license. Perhaps that's what it was about. And the Ephesian church had stood against them and not allowed that to infiltrate the church. And God commends them for that. But at the end, he still says, having done that, what I I desire more than anything else is your heart. So we do need good doctrine, but God wants our hearts completely and fully. Amen. All right, let's go to verse 8. Church at Smyrna. These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, in brackets, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison 
that you might be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful even to death, and I will give you the crown of life. To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So to the church at Smyrna, Jesus says this, well done. Always commends. Well done. You've endured hardship. You've endured suffering. But just remember this. Even though you feel like you are poor, just remember James 2 verse 5. What does James 2 verse 5 say? It says, listen, has not God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love them? That's why it's in brackets. That's a reference to James 2. He's saying, yeah, you've had hard times. You've, got a, you've never had much financially, but God has chosen those that are poor in this world to be rich in faith. And I want to just encourage you this morning, in the midst of the worst economic crisis, I want to say to you again, many of you have had a hard time financially this year. But you know what it is an opportunity for? It's an opportunity for you and I to be rich in faith. To say, God, you are coming through. I know you will. You have always been faithful. You're not going to let me down. You're not going to let my family down. You are the great provider of all. I want to encourage you with that this morning. That's Jesus' encouragement to you. Just like he said to the church in Smyrna. Well done for persevering. And he is, he is your source. And he will continue to be your source so that we can learn to be rich in faith. Amen. I'm going to comment more on some of these than, and less on others just for the sake of time. But let's go to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's amazing as we've uh, just chatted to church planters or in, in the last couple of 10 years or so, wherever they plant is always, the, is always where Satan is, you know? Like, you don't know how hard it is here. <laughs> this, is the, this is the place where Satan dwells. Well, I think it's hard for everybody, wherever you are. But it's the same God, Jesus, who overcomes the world. Amen? And that's what our, our trust is in. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed amongst you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with new names written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, well, you guys have also done well. The church in Ephesus, false teaching, try to implement, uh, infiltrate the church. The church in Smyrna, persecution. The church in Pergamum, both. False teaching and they with, with, uh, stood per persecution well, but they didn't come against the thing of bad doctrine. And there was a reason for that, because Pergamum, if you look at the maps, it was an ancient city built on terraces, and all the terraces went up to one central point where the Acropolis was, and in that place, there were idols to every kind of god. And if you go and read the archaeology, there was uh, temples dedicated to the divine Augustus, the goddess Roma, Askelipos, that's my Greek. It's all right. <laughs> okay. Askelipos, he was the god of healing. And there were these serpents that uh, personified this god. There was a large altar in the Acropolis dedicated to Zeus. And the worship of the emperor as god was encouraged and strongly emphasized in, in those regions. And so it was a major problem for the Christian church at the time. And that's why here John, or Jesus, qualifies Pergamum and says it's the, it's the, it's the, the site of Satan's throne. Because there's all this idolatry in the place. And in the midst of that, we have this guy called Antipas who's martyred and he dies. And there's this reference to Balaam and Balak. And if you read the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, you'll, you'll read the story there. As the Israelites were moving through the desert, there's this prophet Balaam and he comes and he wants to prophesy and he's prevented from prophesying over them. And what he actually wants to do is speak curses over the nation. And so he goes surreptitiously to the king of Moab and he tries to seduce Israel into spiritual adultery through idolatry, basically. And there's this reference here to this Old Testament picture. And in the same way, the Nicolaitans are, are mentioned. 
And though they were opposed in Ephesus, they also were spreading this kind of idolatrous sexual immorality into the church and unfaithfulness. And Jesus strongly encourages the, the churches here to stand for what is true, to not tolerate this doctrine. And for me, as I was just thinking about it, I was just felt God say again and again, part of his encouragement to us in the 21st century is that we stand against deception. We stand against what is not the true gospel. We stand for the true gospel. He wants the gospel in our lives to uproot every idol in our hearts, to uproot everything that exalts itself above the name of Jesus and takes its place and to allow the Holy Spirit to tear those things down because he wants the full affection of our passion. He wants the full affection of our hearts. And what he's saying to these churches, he would say to us as well. And it's interesting because Jesus says at the end of that, there's a reference to the sharp two-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Jesus. And he says, he warns the church, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't discipline false teaching, I will come and intervene directly. That's what Jesus says at the end of that chapter. And so we need to do all we can by the power of the Spirit to ask for revelation ongoingly that God would give us that we can stand firm on the true gospel of Jesus and preach that with all of our hearts. Okay? Still with me? I'm trying to go quite quickly. Verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the word of the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent on her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches your mind and your heart and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have, uh, sorry, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now it's interesting, this little town called Thyatira, it was a, it was a city that was marginalized politically. It didn't have great political influence. It didn't have great cultural influence. But what it did have was a good economy. And you read that in Acts 16. So it had many metal workers. It had many people that uh, uh, traded in fabrics and things like that. So it was an economic center. And it had all of those, those uh, guilds had patron deities, which they would regularly offer sacrifices to. A part of that pagan kind of culture involved ritual prostitution or some kind of idolatry. And so for the Christians living there, there was this woman who's called She's, the, the, the image is she's like Jezebel. She's trying to seduce people to get their hearts from serving the one true God into these idle, idle practices and sexual immorality. So in some ways, Thyatira's strengths and weaknesses are the inverse of the church at Ephesus. Because it says here that church is strong in love and that they had done good things, they had worked hard, but they lacked discernment and they tolerated this woman, Jezebel the self-proclaimed prophetess. And again, I want to just say to you, I think the message that God would say to us is clear. There are many in the world that would draw our hearts away into what the culture would say is acceptable, what the culture would say it needs to be celebrated. But really, it is what God calls seduction. Really, it is idolatry. It's trying to entice us into a lifestyle that does not honor him at the center. And there's the seduction of material wealth social standing. There's always sexual temptation. And it is idolatrous. The thing that God has been restoring this year out of Galatians to us, the message of grace, 
is that the Bible says grace enables you and I to say no to all that is ungodly. Amen. So we can say no to those who control us, who try to control us. We can say no to those who try and seduce us into their way of thinking. We can say no to things that are not valuable in the kingdom because of the grace of God in our lives. We can. Jesus wants to be the absolute center in the place of our hearts. You're doing okay. I can see your jackets are like shaking some of you. It's all right. Another 10 minutes, I'm done. Chapter three. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. It's amazing how that often comes up, eh? Every time. I know your works. You have a reputation from being alive, but you are dead. <laughs> you are so confused, you think you're alive, but actually you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I'll come. And you, you, yet you still have a few names inside us. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out in the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has in the air, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Basically, Jesus says to this church inside us that you guys are in a coma. You think you are alive, but you are dead. You're absolutely dead. You have lulled yourself into this thing, and you are completely dead. And Jesus says to them, wake up. Sometimes God needs to come to us and say, wake up. You think you're alive? You're actually dead. You know what the interesting thing is historically is that Sardis, the city, was sacked twice in its history. Now, in the old days, they would come, and they'd surround the city, and you know how they'd bombard it with all those kind of missiles and stuff. And it'd been sacked twice in AD, uh, sorry, BC 547 by Cyrus II, and in 214 BC by Antiochus III. And it, the interesting thing is this that the watchmen on the walls, because the, the, it was on a cliff and it seemed to be impregnable, they thought the watchmen on the walls were so fast asleep, they didn't see the enemy coming, and twice the city was ransacked. And that same attitude that the city had is in the church inside us. It's like, what can happen to us? We are on the mountain. We are kind of, we're up in the cloud with God. What can happen? What can befall us? And Jesus says to the church, wake up, you are asleep. You are, you are not alert. You are not seeing the signs of the times. Wake up. My prayer is that we will never become complacent. And I think for me, the lesson of this year is that what God showed us in, in Galatians, the thing of the grace of God poured out on our lives. Let's never become complacent about that and just so slip easily into law and religion and just living this kind of main, mundane religious life of ritual without the power, without the intimacy, without the love, just like we slip into this religious coma, just exist. Anyone want that for their lives? I don't want that. I know, I know you don't. But the hope, there's always hope. Because what, what does Jesus say? But there are a few. There are a few names. He doesn't even name them. He says there are a few names. There are still a few of you inside us who are alert, who are unstained. And he talks about the clothes that they're wearing, unstained by the community, unstained. And they are still found in the church. And the hope for revival for the church inside us is in those. Amen. And so he promises them. He says, uh, to you I'll give the conqueror's reward, communion. You'll walk with me. And the white robes of victory, that's the picture that he says. And I want to just ask you as we go into the new year, will you be part of those who are alert, full of faith, saying, yes, Lord, I see. See what you have for your church. See what you have for this church. I'm there. Clothe me with those robes of righteousness. Let me stand. Amen. And then, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who's the key of David, who opens uh, the door who no one will shut and shuts 
and no one will open. I know your works. Again, I've set before you an open door, which is no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and do not deny my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but a liar. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word with patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one will seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write him on the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God of heaven and my own new name. So the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says this, two very simple things. I don't want to dwell on this for very long. I want to get to the latest in church. But he talks, Paul uses this phrase, an open door. And for Paul, often, um, John uses this phrase, an open door. And for Paul, when Paul writes his letters, open doors were always opportunities for ministry. And you can read in Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians, Colossians 4, verse 3. And that might be the sense here of, um, it's a possible way that we could interpret this portion. But I think it's more this, that God was saying these people are excluded from the synagogue. They are Christians that are excluded from the synagogue. But they would become the pillars of the temple. Amen? Those ones that were outside the religious order, they would become the pillars because they had their faith in Jesus. And he talks about this uh, uh, opening up all of heaven to them. And he says, you have little power. You know, the Christians in Smyrna, we heard that they were, they had, they were poor, but spiritually rich. And here he says, those in Philadelphia were weak, yet they were holding fast to the truth of Jesus' word. And there's that wonderful um, comparison there. And he says, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then lastly, to the angel in the churches, Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would you that you were either hot or cold? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And realizing that you are wretched, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you might be rich and white garments that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to, into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I, um, as I also conquered and sit down with my father on his throne. To who he has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus says to this Laodicean church. It's very interesting, again, in terms of the history. Laodicea was, uh, was uh, almost destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60. But it saw itself as a self-sufficient city. So much so, it was such a thriving commercial center. It had a uh, medical center, textile industry, all these wonderful things, that when the disaster came and the Roman government wanted to help them, they even refused the imperial help. They said, no, we can do it ourselves. We don't need your help. I find that fascinating because the city didn't see itself as poor, wretched, and naked. There was a self-sufficiency in, in, in them. They said, oh, we can do this ourselves. We don't need you. We can do it ourselves. And it's interesting. It's in this church. When Jesus speaks to the Laodicean church, can you find a commendation from Jesus to them? There's not one commendation from Jesus to them. In all the others, he commends something. In this Laodicean church, he, he doesn't commend anything. It was famous as a city for its worship of Zeus. And you can still go today, if you go to the city, you can still see unexcavated remains of the wall. It had two theaters. It had a stadium from the time of Vespian. It had a, a gymnasium. It had baths. It had a, a huge water duct that would bring mineral water into the heart of the city. This was a city that was self-satisfied and said, we don't need anything from anybody else. And that same attitude is in the church. We don't need anybody we don't need what God can give. And yet Jesus comes as the true witness. In chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says he's the true witness. And he brings a testimony against the church which contradicts their boasting. 
And he says, you say you are rich, but I say you are poor. Oh, it absolutely refreshes you. When you are freezing cold, what do you do? If you like my wife, you go and get into the bath. Hot bath. And it refreshes you. So both hot and cold have good about them. And Jesus says to this church, you are so lukewarm, you do not see how blind you are, how bankrupt you are, how naked you are, and you cannot do anything to buy what you need. This is the message of grace preached in Revelation. You cannot buy what you need. What you desperately need only comes as a gift to you. And how you get that gift is you come to me and you humble yourself and you say, Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I am not self-sufficient. I, I, need, I want to be completely dependent on you for all of my future. I want to be dependent on you to help me raise my kids, to help me love my wife. I cannot do it by myself. That is the heart of this little letter to the Laodicean church. God wants our full passion of our hearts. He wants our full attention. He wants, he wants us to depend on Him in all things. That's the meaning of these letters. He desires passionate romance with you and I. He wants us to love each other deeply. He wants us to repent of the safeness, the mediocrity, the passionlessness of our relationship and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out into an absolute divine romance with Him. He is encouraging us at the same time to stand firm, endure hardship, have good doctrine, stand against anything that would seduce our hearts away from the central, central things of the kingdom. He wants us to be alert, wake to the devil's schemes, that the devil is wily, he will come and try all he can to seduce the hearts of, of God's people. And my encouragement to you at the end of the year is, is simply this. As we go towards Christmas, allow God to identify in you every single little thing that makes you want to slide towards indifference, to passionlessness, to lukewarmness, because he's calling us deeper. He's calling us into intimacy and relationship with him that we have not yet experienced. He's calling us back to love. He's calling us back to the, the gospel, which is the good news for all. That's what he's calling us to. And I trust next year when we come back from our holidays, we are just going to be full of energy, full of the Holy Spirit, full of passion, full of love for each other because God has revealed that same love to us in our hearts. Amen.